You're listening to the Wellpreneur Podcast, the show about business and life for wellness entrepreneurs. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Wellpreneur Podcast. You know when a book just falls into your lap and it's like you're meant to read this book at this certain time? Well, recently, I was given a copy of a book called Die Empty that was written by Todd Henry. You might know Todd because he's the host of the popular podcast, The Accidental Creative. Well, I got a copy of this book and read it, and I immediately thought, you know, we need to have him on the podcast to talk about this idea of how to do your best work every day. So Todd tends to work with corporates, with companies, with larger entrepreneurs about how they can cut through the clutter and the overwhelm and really make sure they're focusing on their most important work. The idea is that you want to die empty, right? With your best work outside in the world, not stuck inside of you because you could never actually get it out. So although he's not specifically targeting the wellness industry, this is so relevant for us because I know so many wellpreneurs, myself included, are so passionate about different aspects of our business, but also other things in our lives. We want to write books and create podcasts and have TV shows and create companies and create cafes and run retreats and all these lovely things we want to do. And how can we make sure that we don't get distracted and procrastinate because of all the other obligations in our lives and things calling to us, right? How can we focus on this work that's really important? That's what we're talking about in today's interview. Todd and I talk all about how to do your best work, what passion really means and how you can find it, how to focus on those things that are important and not just urgent, and how to set up daily routines and rituals so you can do your best work every day. I know after listening to this episode, you'll have at least one little lifestyle change that you can make to help you do more of your best work every day too. As always, you can get all the links to everything we talk about in the show notes, which are at wellpreneuronline.com. And don't forget to come join us in our Facebook group, The Wellpreneur Community, where we'll be talking about this week's episode. And I'd love to hear what you're going to do, the little change that you might make in your life so that you can do more of your best work every day too. You could find that on Facebook just by typing in Wellpreneur Community in the search bar. So now let's listen to my interview with Todd Henry. Hi, Todd. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Amanda, it's so great to be here. So this is so cool how it worked out because through serendipity, I was actually given a copy of your book, Die Empty. And as I was reading it and you were talking all about, you know, unleashing your best work, making sure that you spend your productive hours producing the work you're meant to do, I just thought, wow, we need to get you on the podcast. And here we are, like a week later. Here we are. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, Through some miracle of space and time, here we are talking to one another. It's great. Cool. So for people that aren't familiar with you and the Accidental Creative, can you just tell us what, what it is that you do? Yeah, so I work mostly with organizations, with companies helping individuals in those companies to be what I call prolific, brilliant, and healthy. (laughs) Uh, Prolific meaning doing a lot of work, which we all have to do. Brilliant meaning doing good work, but also healthy meaning doing it in a sustainable way. And I think one of the the challenges that we all face, I mean, uh, you know, for those of us who are uh, entrepreneurs or those of us who have, you know, sort of we're, we're chasing after something we care very deeply about. 
the prolific piece isn't difficult for us because we know we have to be prolific. We have to produce a lot of work. And the brilliant piece is sort of, you know, sort of par for the course. We know we have to do great work if we want to keep our clients or keep our businesses going. It's the healthy piece often that we overlook. And ironically, I think given the audience that we're communicating with right now, right, I would imagine there are probably a lot of people chasing really quickly after their goals and maybe not necessarily structuring their life in such a way that they're going to be able to continue producing great work over time. And so what I do is I work with people to help them develop practices, rituals, and systems that will enable them to continue producing not just great work and not just a lot of that great work, but also to continue to produce sustainably over time so that they're building a body of work that they'll be proud of over the long term, not just a quick year, then they burn out and they write it out for the rest of their career. So that's primarily what I do. I, I informally dub myself an arms dealer for the creative revolution. So, <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of the listeners out there, because they're in the wellness industry, it's always a little bit of a catch-22 because you want to be telling your clients, you know, oh, well, you need to your health comes first and you need to prioritize self-care and taking care of yourself and having these healthy habits. But when we're trying to run our business, especially in the few years, first few years getting it off the ground, those really could go out the window. And we don't always walk our Absolutely. Talk. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that's always the most difficult thing, right? Is to turn that lens back on yourself and to consider how now how how am I applying the advice that I'm giving to everyone else? And you know, it's a really challenging thing. Again, especially as you say, you have that couple of year window when you have to get things off the ground and you know, you have to sprint. You simply do, but you you don't sprint. You can't sprint for two years. You know, you have to have some rhythm. And again, it's not balance. And I'm sure you've probably discussed this many times. You know, balance, I think, is a misnomer uh, or it's, a, it's a, a misunderstood concept. I think we think like balance to me implies, oh, we're going to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, try to try to even out my life. It's not about that. There are seasons when you're going to be all out sprinting after the thing that you're trying to do. That's just the way it's going to be. But that has to be punctuated with something else. You know, it can't be an all-out sprint all the time if you want to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy. And so, uh, you know, I think that we we have to think embrace the concept of rhythm, not necessarily balance, but rhythm. There's going to be an ebb and a flow to our life. There are going to be seasons when we're all in on one thing and seasons when we're all in on another thing. But we have to embrace that there's always going to be an ebb and flow to our life if we want to continue producing great work over time. Mm -hmm. So in Die Empty, you're really talking about kind of cutting through the clutter and all the stuff that seems urgent to really focus on the stuff that's important and helping you bring out, you know, the key work, not just the stuff that's on fire that day, but the stuff that's going to leave a legacy for you, the stuff, the work that you're really meant to do. So I want to talk about this for a bit, but I think, you know, for a lot of people, they might just, even the fundamental, what is the work I'm supposed to be doing? Like, how do I know what that stuff is that's the most important stuff versus just all the stuff that's on fire that's on my to-do list. Right. And and this is a this is a real challenge for you know people. I think we we make choices in our life and then we end up in a place and we look back and we say, how did I get here? You know, this isn't necessarily where I intended to be at any point in my life. And yet here I am. You know, th this sort of gets to one of, uh, in, in the book, Die Empty, I talk about what I call the seven deadly sins, um, sort of tongue in cheek, but the seven deadly sins that lead people to a place of mediocrity. And mediocrity doesn't, by the way, mean necessarily 
that you're underperforming according to the expectations of everyone around you. I mean, mediocrity, if you parse it into its original language uh, form, comes from two words, medius meaning middle and ochrus meaning rugged mountain. So to be mediocre literally means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain, to get halfway to your objective and say, nah, close enough, I'm going to settle in. And different people have different capacities for doing great work. And so what looks excellent to everyone around you might actually be mediocre to you because you're kind of phoning it in. You're not really pushing yourself. You're not stretching yourself. So you could be settling into medias ochres and no one around you can tell, but you know, you know that you're phoning it in. And with regard to the work that you're wired to do or the contribution that you're wired to make, I think a lot of people very early in their career, figure out something that they're good at and they just settle in and they think, I'm just going to ride this out and climb this ladder or do this thing that everybody recognizes me for being good at. And unfortunately, I think we often turn our back on the thing that we're capable of doing in order to do the thing that is expedient or the thing that, you know, provides for our family. And listen, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with working a job and providing for your family. That's great as long as the body of work you're building, you recognize the body of work you're building is not that job that you're doing. That's fine. Your job is one part of your portfolio, your body of work. But I think for a lot of people, that doesn't feel terribly satisfying. So we have to begin asking some questions and we can only really answer those questions when we are engaged in some kind of activity. We, we work our way toward the thing that we're wired to do. We don't know it out of the gate. And so a lot of people, when they ask that question, well, what is the work I'm supposed to do? Well, they've never really tried anything, right? Or they've only tried a few things and they don't have enough data to answer that question. And so I always tell people, well, you need to go out and, and do some things, right? Dedicate yourself to something for a couple of years and pay attention to the patterns in the midst of that. What are you good at? What are you not good at? What do people recognize you for? What seems obvious to you that isn't obvious to everyone else? Well, maybe that's a clue that there's something you're wired for that other people aren't wired for. But I think there are some other questions that we can ask as well, Amanda, to help us drill down on this thing that I call productive passion. And productive passion is different from the way we often use the word passion. We tend to talk about passion as something you know that we like or something that gives us that sense of temporary enjoyment when we do it. Like I'm passionate about ice cream, you know, I'm passionate about whatever, you know, some sport or something like that. And that's fine, but that's not really what the word passion means. Again, if you Go back to the, the, the root of the word passion. It comes from the word that means to suffer. So when we talk about being passionate about something, it means that we're willing to suffer on behalf of an outcome because we care so much about the outcome. We're willing to endure the temporary discomfort, the temporary suffering necessary in order to achieve that outcome. Now, it doesn't mean we suffer all the time, right? But it means we've discovered something that we're willing to, to suffer for in order to achieve an outcome because that outcome matters so much to us. So a couple of questions we can ask to begin answering that uh, or to discovering that productive passion are, for example, what makes you angry or what fills you with compassionate anger, compassion, again, to suffer with, to make suffering common. What fills you with compassionate anger? When you see something, what makes you go, ah, somebody needs to do something about that? Yeah, that somebody is probably you. That's why you feel that way, right? So what fills you with compassionate anger? And this is different from your know, road rage. Ah, somebody cut me off on the highway. That's very different from compassionate anger, which is I feel angry because someone else is suffering and I want to enter into that and help them overcome it. So for example, maybe uh, you know if you're in the wellness space and you, you recognize that people are burning themselves 
out. I mean, this is something that really drives me. People are burning themselves out because they're believing this cultural narrative that the way that you get ahead in life is you just burn yourself crispy over and over and over again. You go through these cycles of crash, burn, refresh. You treat yourself like a machine. Well, over time, that machine is going to break down because you're not wired for that. You're wired for rhythm. And so that fills me with compassionate anger when I see people falling prey to that myth. And so I want to step into that. I want to enter into that. And I'm willing to suffer on behalf of helping them do that because it's part of my productive passion. Another one that you can ask is what fills you with emotion or what makes you cry, right? And you know, this, for example, for me, I am profoundly moved by the stories of underdogs. I am. I have watched under there's several underdog movies I've watched over and over and over and over again. Like there's a movie called Rudy that's about uh, Rudy Rudiger. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a football player for Notre Dame. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, one, always wanted to play football for Notre Dame, but he was, you know, just too small. Nobody thought he could make it. And he finally does. He gets in and he makes the team. And there's this sort of climactic moment in the movie where he actually gets into a football game. And uh, so my wife comes downstairs as I'm watching this and I've, you know, I'm like, visibly weeping so emotional as I'm watching this movie she's like why are you crying you've seen this movie a hundred times like why are you so emotional I'm like I know but he's so small and he's playing so well and it's beautiful you know I am profoundly moved by the stories of underdogs and so when I work with companies who are underdogs I do I know I do my best work for these Davids taking on Goliaths because it moves me emotionally. So to identify, those are just a couple of things, but to identify the area where you are wired to play at your best, I think you need to do some serious excavation, which means looking at the patterns. So where are the places in your past work, in your past life where you have uh, been moved with compassionate anger and you have entered in and you have done something to rectify the situation? Where have you been moved emotionally by a circumstance to the point where it's like, I can't stand on the sidelines here. I have to enter in. I have to act. Well, what is that? Those are the deep wells of productive passion that can drive our best work and ensure that we're staying on course over the long term, not just in temporary terms. What I really like about that approach is I feel like it's different from what I read a lot online, which is people saying, oh, you know, find your passion, follow your passion, as if there is one thing and you have to find that yeah, one thing and it's elusive and it's out there. And if you get it wrong, it's, you know, your whole life's ruined. Like there's all this pressure people feel to find their passion, the one thing. But what you're saying, I think, is a really tangible, like grounded approach because it's like, what are, there's going to be several things you're passionate about and it might change during your life, but it's those things that really elicit emotion and reaction in you and that you, yeah, that you deeply care about. So thank you for that. That really makes sense. And to that point, your portfolio of passions, right, is going, as you said, you're going to change your activities over the course of time. But you know, also, you can apply those productive passions in any context, right? I, th- I think sometimes we think about like, following your passion. It's about getting that dream job. You know, it's about some circumstance in your life or, or having that dream client. Well, the reality is that those dream situations are circumstantial. They only last for a short period of time. It doesn't matter whether you get it or whether you don't get it because you're going to be moving on to something else at some point anyway. So you have to know yourself and know what you're bringing to the circumstances that you encounter not instead of of expecting those circumstances to be filling you in some way because if you're seeking to get something out of your circumstances to fill some need that you have from the circumstances around you you're going to be perpetually disappointed instead you have to ask what am i bringing to the world your productive passion is more about what you bring to whatever circumstance you encounter than it is about what that circumstance does for you 
Mm-hmm. And I think for for entrepreneurs, this is so relevant because you know, in a corporate world, it's a little bit more tricky to have the independence in every role to start to follow this stuff. But as an entrepreneur, if you identify these things you're passionate about, you really can make an impact. I mean, you really can, yeah, make a change in the world. And so I think that, you know, why align your business and what you're going to be working like crazy on for the next few years with something that's not your passion? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And, you know, I mean, frankly, some some of the most intriguing and passionate and engaged people I've ever met are in some of the most boring industries you would, I mean, like <laughs> industries that would put me to sleep immediately, right? But these are passionate, engaged people who know what drives them. They know what makes them tick. And it doesn't matter if they're selling shoestrings or if they're selling pasta or if they're like whatever it is, it doesn't matter because they have something that drives them beyond the product. It's not just about the product. It's about the difference they're making in the lives of the people they lead, the lives of the people that they serve through their work. And frankly, for some of them, it's I, yes, I have a business and my business is an engine that drives economic resources provides economic resources so that I can funnel those resources into some other part of my portfolio of passions that is a part of that body of work that I'm building that matters just as much to me as my business does. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know people who work unbelievably boring jobs, Amanda, or have started incredibly boring companies that, I mean, it's fine for them. I mean, they bring their best to what they do, but there's some other thing. Maybe it's community involvement, you know, some sort of active service, or maybe it's there. I mean, for, for those, those of us who have families, it's their family, right? Our family is a big chunk, a huge chunk of our body of work. And and for many of us, myself included, the most important part of our body of work. And so nothing in our life is worth sacrificing that part of our our portfolio of our body of work. And so there's nothing wrong with that, with seeing a job or a business or anything else as a means to enable you to accomplish another end, which is ancillary to that, that job or that business, whatever it is, because that part of your body of work is so important to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, you've got a chapter all about finding your voice. And that's another buzz term that comes up quite a bit. And I think people feel a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure around it because there's all this talk online about, oh, you need to be authentic and like find your voice. So, so I don't know. How do you approach that whole issue? What does that mean to you to find your voice? Yeah, well, actually, it's funny because the, the follow-up book to Die Empty was called Louder Than Words. And it was all about developing your voice, right? And I don't like the phrase find your voice so much as I do the phrase develop your voice because I think your voice is something that's developed over time. You know, it's not something that is hidden inside of you and you have to discover, you know. No, you develop your voice as you interact with the world. You develop your voice as you notice what moves you. You see the patterns in your environment. You recognize the areas where you seem to have a disproportionate amount of contribution And you say, oh, I need to follow that vein of gold because there's something there. And and this sort of authenticity, there were were really sort of five things I explored in Louder Than Words that comprise a relevant, compelling, authentic voice. And they were authenticity, which is a word that you just used, authenticity, uniqueness, precision, empathy, and timing. But with regard to authenticity, I think we often use that word to describe behavior that says, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say what I think. I'm just going to put it all out there. If you can't deal with me, you can't deal with me. That's too bad. That's just who I am. Just deal with me. 
that I don't believe that that understanding of authenticity is very helpful or useful, especially in the business context. I think that authenticity instead means that you're showing people what you care about. You're showing people that you have skin in the game, that you're wearing what you care about on your sleeve. And so we talked about those questions earlier, the productive passion questions. People need to see that there's something that drives you. So authenticity is, hey, I care about underdogs and I am going to harp on about underdogs all day long because this is something that matters to me. I'm showing you something that I care about. This isn't transparency. It's not just complete transparency. It's I'm going to show you what I care about and I'm going to put that out there for the world and you can shoot arrows at it. That's fine. That's okay. But I'm going to continue in this direction because this is what matters to me. So I think we need to reclaim our understanding of that word, of uh, the word authenticity and make sure that we're not using it or conflating it with the word transparency, which is basically just here I am, deal with me. I don't think that's all that helpful in a business context, or frankly, in life in general. I think there are parts of our life that should not be visible to other people because they're, you know, they're private. They're, they're, you know, uh, other people shouldn't have a window into that. But for the parts that we do show to other people, we need to show them what we genuinely care about. And if you want a voice that resonates, that is authentic, that connects with the people that you're trying to reach, they need to see that you care about something beyond getting the sale, right? There is something driving this business and my work and my interaction with you that is, uh, there are layers beneath just the transactional conversation that we're having. I'm going to show you what I really care about. And when we do, our work begins to resonate on a deeper level with the people that we're trying to reach than it does if we just talk about the attributes of the product or, you know, sort of on the surface level about the transaction that we're engaging in. Yeah, cool. I really like how you started it off with this idea of developing your voice too, because that has absolutely been my experience, um, especially in the online world. Like, you know, if you think back to your first blog post, you know, like the first, the first year, the first two years you write a blog or that you start podcasting, I mean, you don't, haven't really found your voice yet. And the only way you can find it right. is by producing a certain quantity of work and doing it over and over and experimenting. And eventually you start sounding much more like yourself because you get much more comfortable with it. So I- That's I exactly like right. That. I mean, there, yeah. And, and you know, I started podcasting in 2005. So I've been doing it for 13 years now, a couple of episodes a week. And there's a very good reason why you can't find the first five years of the Accidental <laughs> Creative Podcast anywhere, right? It's because- I mean, I was still exploring and, and developing my voice and figuring out what I think about different things. And so I actually said things in 2006 that I disagree with now, you know, because I was trying to, to work things out in public. And that's what we're often doing these days. And so, you know, I, I think that we have to give ourselves the grace and the permission to not feel like we have to have it all together, but we have to be, we have to have some compass by which we're navigating. We have to be moving in some direction. If people see that, if people see where you're going and what you care about, it's going to garner a lot more empathy. And it's also going to um, connect much more deeply with them than if they feel like, well, this is what I'm doing today, but tomorrow my feelings could change. I could be off doing something else. No, they need to see that you are deeply rooted, that there's something substantial about what you're doing that you care about. Even if you're getting some of it wrong, that's okay. They need to see that you're deeply rooted, that you care about them, and that you have a vision for where you're going. I, I, in Louder Than Words, I talked about how voice is an expression through a medium in order to achieve an impact, right? Mm -hmm. And all three of those things need to be consistent with your message and with what you're trying to do. So the expression being who you are, what you care about, 
and, and the message that you're trying to get across, the medium being you know, the channel with which you choose to express that. And in order to achieve an impact, it's about the vision that you have for the people who are receiving it. Your voice isn't what you say. Your voice is what other people hear. You know, so you need to make sure that you're thinking not just about what do I want to say, but what change am I trying to create in the person who is listening to this and how are they going to likely best receive the message? How can I enter into what they're thinking, what they're feeling and communicate what I care about in such a way that they're able to receive it? So when we talk about voice, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about that deep beneath the surface connection we have with other people and the way that they perceive what it is you want for them. Okay, last question about die empty, and then we'll move on to what you're doing these days. But in that section about finding your voice, developing your voice, there's a, a subpart called life in the shadows. And it says, shadow pursuits are activities that capture our attention and give us a sense of accomplishment, but serve as a substitute for the real work we know we should be doing. And then you talk about how Julia Cameron, who her book, The Artist's Way, I absolutely love. We've talked about that on the show before. Um, and she yeah. says that that's very common for artists, that they'll do something sort of related to what they want to be doing as almost like a way to procrastinate or avoid the risk of doing the scary work, the real work that they need to do. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so it's really easy to pursue, instead of taking the risk to do the work that you maybe feel called to do or the thing you feel is being called out of you, you take a much safer job or assume a much safer role that is adjacent to that so that you're not in the arena. You know, you're maybe hovering around the edge of the arena, but you're not really in the arena so that you don't have to take arrows, right? You don't have to, to take shots at your work. And you, know, you get the satisfaction of being adjacent to the career or the, the job or the role that you think you should be playing, but you don't have to take the risks. And I think that is a profoundly sad phenomenon. And I do see people do that pretty frequently. And it's it's unfortunate because it's driven by nothing but a need to protect yourself, a need to avoid any kind of public critique or any sort of potential for being perceived as having failed in some capacity. You know, it's, it's not even the failure itself. It's the perception of the failure that often keeps us from taking risks, which is very unfortunate. Frankly, you know, it's not just fear of failure, it's fear of success, Amanda. And you've probably seen this in your work as well. It's if I actually succeed at this, will I be able to sustain this pace? Mm-hmm. You know, if I actually stick my head up, is you know, it's like the tallest blade of grass gets cut kind of phenomenon, right? Like I don't do I really want to stand out? Because if I start if I if I do something that's that's outstanding then I'm going to become a target for other people. Do I really want that? Because I don't know if I'm worthy of it. I don't know if I'm capable of it. I don't know. And so we sandbag. So we withhold our engagement. And in so doing, we we sacrifice the body of work that we're capable of building. So I think we have to embrace the inherent risk involved in doing any kind of work. Listen, not doing something is incredibly risky. Not taking a risk is incredibly risky. Not stepping out and doing something you're uniquely capable of doing is incredibly risky. So we have to step out of the shadows. We can't avoid to hover around the adjacent area of the thing that we feel called to and and bide our time because in so doing, we are leaving our best work inside of us and we're compromising the the body of work that we're building. And someday we're going to point to that body of work and say, yeah, that doesn't really reflect who I am and what I'm capable of. It reflects the, the fear that I allowed to take control of me during that season of my life. So I don't know, just your personal opinion, like, do you think it's usually a better approach for people to just, you know, if they, so they've heard that they're like, yeah, I do have that thing inside me that 
I know I'm called to do and I keep procrastinating on or avoiding or whatever. So do you think it's generally, do you prefer to just leap into it and just try to do it in a big way? Or do you recommend people start and just like, just kind of dip their toe in the water? Or what, what have you seen that really works? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you have to understand on a very profound and deep level what you're willing to sacrifice in order to see your vision accomplished, whatever that vision is. And if you have other people around you who are dependent upon you, so if you're a primary breadwinner in your family, or if you have you know anyone who depends on your capacity to earn income or to provide or to be around, quite frankly, you have to know what it is you're willing to sacrifice. And if you have other people around you, you have to have that conversation together. So I'm always a huge fan of experimenting and playing around before just jumping in. Make sure that you actually want to do the thing that you're going into. Do things on the side, experiment, take risks. I mean, the the great thing about the way the world is today is that we have access to so much technology. Startup costs are so low for most kinds of businesses that you might want to start. So I would encourage you to to play around, to experiment, to take little risks, you know, small risks. Um, Jim Collins, who wrote the book Great by Choice, said that most largely innovative companies that were 10x companies, as he called them, uh, meaning they were 10 times uh, more productive than than those around them, fired bullets before they fired cannonballs, right? They would put a little bit of gunpowder in a, in a gun and they would calibrate their shots by firing bullets. And then once they had calibrated their shot, then they would pack all the gunpowder in and fire the cannonball, the big cannonball, right? In order to achieve the impact. But they didn't start out by putting all of their gunpowder in a cannon and firing off a cannonball and saying, I hope this really hits. no they would fire bullets first to calibrate their shot. So what kinds of little risks can you take this week? Small risks, little experiments, things that you can do in order to give you some sense of what's working, what's not working, so you can calibrate your shots. And then once you think you have a good opportunity in front of you, then you can pack all the powder and then you can take the big risk, but it's a calculated risk at that point. It's not a stupid risk. You're not just blindly leaping into the unknown. Now, listen, if you're young, if you don't have a lot of responsibilities, if you know you don't have a lot of financial obligations, whatever, hey, do do what you want. I would I would be a huge advocate of taking a big risk early in your life. But the moment that you have other people dependent on you, I think that you have to be much, much more calculated in and how you act. I started my business when I was in my mid-30s. I'm now in my mid-40s. And my wife and I had a lot of conversations about what kind of runway do we need. And for her, it was, uh, we need to have X amount of dollars saved before you leap off and start your own thing, you know, so that we knew that we at least had some runway if things didn't go well to be able to give us, you know, a little bit of margin for me to be able to find another job or whatever it was going to take. But that was a conversation we had together. What's it going to take for you to feel comfortable with me making this leap? And once we came to that determination, for me, it was just, okay, well, I dedicated myself to making sure that happened while I was building things on the side. And then once we had that, I made the leap. And fortunately, things have worked out, but it could have very well been the other way, you know? Oh, thank you. Cool. So you just have a new book coming out, right? So tell us about tell us about your new book. I do. Yeah. So the new book is, is out now. It's called Herding Tigers, <laughs> Be the Leader That Creative People Need. You know, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, Amanda, that, you know, leading creative people is like herding cats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That has always grated against me. I can't stand that phrase because it just implies that creative people are these flighty beings that just can't stay focused and they're always bouncing around. I just I think that is incredibly insulting to most of the creative professionals that I know. You know, we are professionals. We are people who are hired to do a, do a job, solve problems, make things happen. I mean, all of the people listening, if you solve problems every day, you are creative, right? You're a creative professional. 
you solve problems for a living. And so the new book is really about what kind of environment do highly creative, highly talented people need in order to thrive, in order to do their best work. And you know, one of the things I've heard over the last decade of my life working with organizations, uh, you know, is, is this phrase coming from the, the creative people inside of organizations. Well, they won't let me. I, all the things you're saying are great, but those people won't let me, right? Won't let me do this or that or whatever. And so I wanted to write a book for managers, specifically managers of creative teams to help them understand, okay, what is it that makes creative people tick? And how do you create an environment as a manager in which they can unleash their best work every day and feel the stability that they need to be able to take risks, but also the appropriate level of challenge to push them to try new things, to experiment, to venture out into those maybe dark places where brilliant ideas reside, but they're not willing to go because they don't feel permission from you yet to do that. So that's really what the, what the book is about. And I'm super excited that people are getting it in their hands and, and, and starting to apply some of it. Awesome. So I always like to ask because we are the Wellpreneur podcast and we like to talk about, you know, not only the wellness industry, but wellness as entrepreneurs. And, you you know, you started off talking about how you like to help people within organizations to, you know, create those rituals and habits and routines that allow them to do their best work consistently. So I'm curious about you and your own routines. Like, do you have, I don't know, do you have a morning routine, for example, or do you have other types of rituals and routines that really help you to produce without burning out? I do. I have a couple that I'll mention. I have a morning routine. It's been the same for about 15 years now. Uh, I get up in the morning, uh, usually around six o'clock a.m. I try to get up ahead of the family, a little bit ahead of the family. Now, now that we have older kids who are in high school and, and middle school, they get up, you know, shortly after me. But I get up, I make coffee, I have the same breakfast every single morning when I'm not traveling, working with a client, and that is oatmeal, frozen blueberries, and cashews. <laughs> and I make my coffee, I go to my home office, and I sit and I eat breakfast, and I study for the first hour of my day. So I spend about a half hour reading, studying, and taking notes. And then I spend the second half of that hour reflecting on what I've read and thinking about what's going to happen that day. And the final 15 minutes or so of that half hour is spent um, mapping out my day. So I, I plan my day ahead of time and any open blocks, I plan what I'm going to do creatively with the, that time. So I've got a, I use a practice I learned from my friend Mike Rohde called time blocking or uh, visual, like a, he calls it the day bar, which is a, you basically make a little rectangle and you mark out the hours on the bar and then you, you plan your time blocks ahead of time. So if I have any open time on my schedule, I plan what I'm going to do with that time ahead of time so that I, I know I'm not just sort of drifting from task to task, but I actually have dedicated deep work time planned on my calendar. The other thing I'll mention is that I tend to take a long walk in the middle of the day. So anytime around 11, 11.30 a.m., I will go for a walk. And I often walk as far as like maybe five miles. And I use that time to think about what I've been working on that morning, think about what's going to be happening that afternoon, mull over a really difficult problem I'm trying to solve. Sometimes I'll listen to a book or listen to a podcast or something like that. But I, I try to keep that space free, you know, and keep my mind uh, free and clear to be able to just synthesize and think about what's going on. You know, walking is an incredibly valuable tool for creative problem solving because you're getting out of your environment, you're mobile, you're introducing yourself to new stimulus, you know, new things are going on around you. And it's just a really great way to jog ideas and to connect dots. So that's been a really valuable ritual practice for me now for a number of years. I used to do it in the evening, but now I do it right in the middle of the day because I find that I often come back from my walk with about 
10 new ideas that I want to you know, try to implement. So it's always, always really helpful. So those are just a couple of things, but yeah, those are those, you know, ritual I think is really important. It's important to be grounded, but you can't let your rituals become ruts, which they can do. So the moment you notice that a ritual isn't necessarily as effective anymore, I think it, you, you need to be willing to, you need to be willing to have a ritual, but you also need to be willing to change that ritual if you notice that you're not getting the results from it that you need. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of taking a walk in the middle of the day too. I actually, no other podcast guest has talked about doing anything like that in the middle of the day. Mm. People will say, oh, they go to the gym or take a lunch break. But I think what you're hitting on is that time to go out and you've done some work and you've got more to do, but you're just giving yourself blank space without listening to a podcast, without filling your mind. Right. You know, you just have time to process. I think that's, I mean, that's awesome. I'm going to do it. There we go. I'm inspired. Oh, good. <laughs> ah, good, good. Well, you know, another another really easy one, a simple one is, you know, we, we, are, we are so inundated these days, Amanda, with information and so many things are coming at us all the time. Um, you know, if you drive wherever you go, um, you know, a lot of us maybe drive cars to get to our job or whatever. Try an experiment where for a week, you don't listen to anything in your car. You just mm-hmm. sit in silence in your car for a week. And it's really, it's incredible how calming that is when you don't have you know, podcasts or music or anything blaring in the background, but you're just sitting in silence in your car uh, on your commute. It is, uh, it is a, a really, uh, it's almost un- unnerving. It's almost unsettling. Uh, when you're when you start injecting strategic silence into your life, because we're so used to being surrounded by noise and just getting you know bits of data coming at us from all angles, uh, the ping is attacking us from from every different direction. So uh, yeah, I just I'm I'm a huge fan of encouraging people to try to find as many pockets of silence where they can get alone with their thoughts as they can. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! So I just um, you won't know this, but I just did the Trans Siberian Railroad all the way from China back oh, to Europe. Wow! So it was day of sitting on the train where you're disconnected and staring out at birch trees and snow. And I definitely had that experience. Like it was just, it it made me almost remember my childhood because I think that's the last time I had big blocks of empty space with no distractions. And it's so good. You know, it is grounding, but also your mind just starts making, you know, it's like synthesizing your life in a way. You're making connections to things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, and that was really, really moving for me. So I'm glad to hear you say that too, because I think that's something we we all could use more of in our life for sure. Mm, absolutely. Okay, last question, totally out of left field, but there's a lot of people right now that would like to start a podcast. Now you've been podcasting for 10 years and podcasts are so different now than they used to be. The industry is really, they're really becoming more mainstream now. So I don't know, do you have a couple bits of advice if somebody's thinking about starting a podcast? You know, what would you tell someone? I guess my first bit of advice would be make sure that you have a point of view, right? Make sure that you have something that you're you're doing with your show. I think it didn't it didn't used to be this way. I mean, when I started in 2005, when I started the Accidental Creative Podcast, you know, I wanted to talk about the nature of creating on demand every day, you know, in, in the context of an organization. And so it was not terribly professional. I mean, I recorded it, I put it out. It was called the Accidental Creative. You know, it was kind of this weird, niche kind of thing kind of forgot about it and you know came back to listen to podcasts you know to try to find some podcasts to listen to about a month later and there was one called The Accidental Creative that was one of the top podcasts in iTunes and I thought my first thought Amanda was oh no I stole someone else's idea I can't believe there's a podcast already called that right and it wasn't it was my podcast it was it was just that I had entered into a niche that wasn't being served and just by virtue of the fact that I was there people were listening it is not that way anymore it is so much more difficult 
nowadays to get traction with your podcast. But that should not deter you because there's also a tremendous opportunity. There are so many more people listening today than have ever listened to podcasts. So you have to have a point of view. You can't just say, hey, welcome to my entrepreneurship podcast. We're going to talk about starting businesses. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. But what's your angle? What's your perspective? What's your point of view on that? Are you going to have specific kinds of guests on your show that will talk about a specific niche or industry, which I know that you have done so well, Amanda, right? You, you have to have some unique angle. So I was fortunate to be able to build an audience of tens of thousands of people before podcasting became a huge thing. Because I think today it's a lot harder to find those people. But the good news is that if you target properly and if you have a show that's really valuable to the person on the other end, people will listen and they will tell their friends about your show and you will grow an audience. But I, I think, you, you know, it used to be you put something out and people would listen. I think today you have to have a point of view. You have to have something you're chasing after. And, you know, I, people argue about audio quality. I don't, I still don't think audio quality is like the primary thing that people pay attention to, but there's a minimum, right? Audio quality you have to have in order to be listenable to people. So, you know, just make sure that the audio quality is something that you would want to listen to if you were listening to a podcast, but um, yeah, make sure you have a point of view, make sure that you are, um, you know, doing something that is very specific and precise and that you're providing value in every episode for the the listener on the other end. And I think if you do that, you're going to find your audience eventually. It might take some time, but you're going to find your audience. Mm -hmm. And it totally comes back to what you said before about developing your voice. You know, you have a point of view, you're being authentic and you're putting it out there and developing your own voice and then, and your people will find you. So Todd, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, Why don't you tell everybody where they can find your book, get in touch with you, all that good stuff. Yeah. The the books, uh, all of the books, if you just search for Todd Henry wherever you buy books. Uh, you'll find my books. There are four of them out there right now. Uh, the Axel Creative Podcast. Again, been doing it for 13 years. So uh, we do two episodes a week. So uh, check that out. Or if you want to find out more about me, you can find me at toddhenry.com. T-O-D-D-H-E-N-R-Y.com is my personal site. You can get to anything I do from there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Todd. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Wellpreneur Podcast. Don't forget to come over to our Wellpreneur community group on Facebook and talk about the small changes you're going to make in your life so that you can do more of your best work every day too. As always, all the links to everything we talked about are in the show notes at wellpreneuronline.com. So until next week, get out there and do some of your own best work. I can't wait to see what you create. Come share it with us in the group. And I will see you back here next week for the next episode. Thank you.